and welcome to another full-blooded podcast. My name is Mr. X, but you can call me Leo, and I have a special guest today in our mobile lounge sponsored by FreeBallroomLessons.com. Please welcome to the lounge, Mr. Joe Nuzo. Joe, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Joe, how long have I known you? About 20 years. And in all that time, I feel that not only have you shared a lot of interesting stories with me and my sons, who also love your stories, but just about anybody I bring to the dinner table, great dinner conversation. You, you have traveled and you have done things, and to me they're so fascinating, they're so interesting. And today, uh, before we start talking about racism, which you wanted to talk about, and I want to talk about how is it possible that you stay married for over 53 years. Um, and of course, some of your arm, army stories and some of the stories with your coach. But um, I want you to tell the audience a little bit about yourself before we start getting to some great conversations together. Well, I'm I was once five foot seven, about a, <laughs> about one hundred and forty pounds. Now, now I'm five four and one hundred and sixty pounds. I'm half English. I'm half Italian. Um, I didn't go uh, to college. And I didn't spend a lot of time studying in grammar school or high school. And one of the reasons is because I enjoyed being outside so much, and I enjoyed my dad's business. I started working in there when I was about 11 years old, maybe 10 really. And uh, I had pigeons, and I was always busy, and I got, I got a lot of nervous energy. So I'm, I'm kind of a fidgety kind of a guy. And uh, school... Uh, after a while, if I sat in a classroom too long, I got nervous, and I needed to get out and exercise. And so, that's who I am. Okay, and uh, uh, you know, I was in the army, and um, I went in at at eighteen, and got out about uh, twenty two, and uh, I I went to Hawaii. I joined, and. Um, in Hawaii, uh, I, I worked with a lot of different people, and uh, I got kind of some good views of people. I was a cook, and in the kitchen, and uh, there's a lot of black people that work in the kitchen because they're good at it. And uh, so I got to meet black people, which I didn't really, growing up in Alhambra, I came from a city called Alhambra, we had only one black boy, his name was Kalo. And a couple, I think maybe maybe a black girl. And so I really didn't have much to do with black people, kind of. But our school was kind of different. The heroes of our school were black. Before I got there, there was four brothers. And their name uh, was uh, Allen, their last name was. And they were... The As in Marcus Allen, the great running back? Kind of. And... Uh, they were uh, really good singers. What year was this, Joe? Well, I, I got to school in 58. And so I'd say maybe the last Allen came out maybe 57. And uh, I seen them because they, they performed. They were real good singers. And they performed for our school after they had graduated and went on to, to college and junior college and, and athletes. And... Uh, so they were they became the hero of our school. If there was going to be a fight, they're the ones that stopped it. 
They didn't start any fights. They just stopped the fights. And people at our school appreciate him so much that they looked up to him. And they were the best athletes. They were the best singers. And they were the nicest guys in our school. Now, now you're telling me, were you, when you were going to this high school, they were already there or you were seeing them coming in? I, I, I my, my best friend, uh, I was in Pigeons with a, a guy named Louis Finocchio. And he was four years older than me. And he was in school with them. So I got the second hand from him, but then I also went to the football games with his father. And so every day, and I seen him almost every day because we were partners in racing pigeons. And we would talk about it all the time. And he had he was in choir also. And then I got to see him later on. I, I even played in a football game with uh, one of them. And uh, what was amazing was that particular one, his name was Cecil. And he had tried out for the Olympics in hurdling. And we were playing a football game at kind of at uh, just a bunch of guys got together at Moore Field. And he went to tackle me. And here's about six foot, I don't know, four maybe. And I'm five, seven at the time. I was one of the quicker or maybe the quickest guys in our school for carrying a football. And so I was playing with him and he went to tackle me and he grabbed me and tried not, not to hurt me. He could have killed me if he wanted to, but he just set me down so gentle and we looked at kind of wrapped, wrapped you around, wrapped, uh, wrapped his arms around just kind of gently laid you down. Yeah. And, and, I never forgot that. You know, that was something that was amazing. How much experience have you had with him individually up until that tackle? No. I, I, had, I had only maybe seen him from a distance. So he didn't know me really. I knew his brothers. I, I didn't know him personally, but I knew them. I so you knew them. of them, but you really had no direct engagement with them? No. Now, now was the school the same? Did they, were they popular? Were they not popular? Were they strange to the school? I mean, this is at a time when... The whole country was going through a major transition, right? Well, what happened, the coaches would always talk about him. All the coaches did. And they used to, you know, I was a varsity football player eventually after I went through C's and B's. And the best, they would have a dinner after the, every football game. And they would show films of the game. And they had it at this, I don't know what it was, but it was like a house that the whole team could be there. And they had a kitchen in it. It was for the school. And uh, uh, she was the best cook. So she always did the cooking. And everybody always raved about her cooking. That was the, the Alan's mom. And uh, so I, I just, all my life, I thought of them. And I even eventually had a business uh, that my dad had started. And we actually, I actually hired one of their cousins and uh, who the last name was Alan also. So it was kind of neat, and we talked about him a lot, and she knew exactly what I talked about because they were the heroes of our school. Nobody else, them. And uh, how, how were they treated? They, everybody loved them. Are you kidding? And uh, when Dwayne Allen, the youngest one, uh, became a Ram and... Uh, his very first play, he scored a touchdown. Man, me and Louie 
my my friend that that knew Alan personally, we were listening to every minute of that game or watching it, and we were so proud. And later on, just two or three years ago, I went to a Hall of Fame for Alhambra, and his son Alan, who was a uh, sheriff, I think it was, was one of the speakers. And I come to find out that Dwayne Allen was uh, an end, all right, but he was more of like a defensive end. And in them days, they didn't run out for many passes. And he, first five throws to him were all touchdowns. That's what I learned at, at that banquet. And I was shocked that, you know, and it turned out that they just never threw much to to the defensive ends. I mean the offensive ends; they were just used for blocking. So, so, so these guys did really well in high school. Is that what your high school team was called, the Rams? No, no, no. We were called the Moors, Alhambra Moors. Alhambra Moors. But you said that he went on to play for the Ram. Yeah, the, yeah, the L.A. Rams. Did he really? Yeah, and and uh, he eventually uh, probably got hurt, just like all of them, and then he tried ras- wrestling, you know, the fake kind. And then he got a job at Alhambra again and uh, ended up finally getting diabetes and lost one or, I think, both of his legs eventually. And he worked there until he retired. And At Alhambra? At Alhambra, the, 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 not just Alhambra High School, but the city, you know, the whole city. Oh, okay. But he worked for, the, I believe, the schools. And because, you know, Alhambra has a, a minor... Monterey Park is kind of part of that district, and it's called Markeppel, and then San Gabriel High School. So there's kind of like three high schools around there. So, so what made you think of this uh, black family and these boys named Alan and Dwayne? What what made you think of all that today? Well, I was thinking about prejudice because you're all you're hearing in the news uh, is politics right now. It's the biggest thing going. But didn't you hear more about prejudice in the 60s during the Civil Rights Movement when JFK had to tell the nation we got to step in or Lyndon B. Johnson had to step in? Because, you know, people around the world are seeing us on the cover of Time magazine, you know, water hosing our own citizens, right, in, uh, in peaceful protests. Here they're getting, you know, water hosed with these fire department hoses and they're also getting bitten by the dogs, so... And then B. Johnson had to step in, but why? Why do you feel there's more now than back then? Or what are you? What are you? How are you comparing it? Well, you know, in Alhambra, which is Southern California, it wasn't exactly like the rest of the country. Every part of this this nation we have here is different, and uh, it what could happen in California couldn't happen in the South. Like, I went to a, a Rose Bowl game. And I was maybe a junior or a senior at Alhambra. And I had never seen in my life uh, a white woman with a black man either being married or girlfriend and boyfriend. Because there's not a lot of black people in Alhambra, right? So this was before the Sidney Poitier movie when he kissed a white woman? Well, this would have been about 1960, maybe 61. And, uh, And I never thought bad of it. But I just thought, well, that's the first time I've seen it. Yeah. And I always wonder, I wonder if I would marry a, a black woman. I always thought that. And uh, and I wasn't sure. You know, I, I, I thought, well, the one black girl at our school 
was actually beautiful, and she was an athlete. She, you could tell it, and she was very nice. So I, I just thought, I wonder what, who I'm going to marry. I didn't know, really. I didn't plan to marry white or black or brown or Mexican or anything. I just was going to, if I got married, I, I was wondering who, I, who I'd marry. And it turned out I married a Samoan. A, Pol a Polynesian, Hawaiian, uh, American, Samoan mix. Well, she's not, uh, she, she's basically Samoan with some uh, Holly, white in her, and some Asian. But she was born in, in America, Samoa, and so she has that, that belief that they have from that, from that island. Uh. So they're all a little different, depends where they're born, because Polynesians, their islands are spread far it's apart. Quite, it's, it's quite vast, yes. Yeah, and so they're, they all are a little different. Yeah, for sure. So anyway, I, I married a, a Samoan girl, and one thing I liked about her, she she didn't talk out of two sides of her face. It was only one side. <laughs> Excuse me. Are you saying that she was... <laughs> she uh, would tell you her mind, and uh, for sure, she didn't have to lying. hide it. No, no. No lying. No. Now, are you saying you had other girls that lied? No, no, I, well... I didn't have I didn't have much experience with girls. I had one girlfriend, but she was more interested in how tall they was. She she picked me because she knew my sister, and I looked really good on the football field. You know this little guy running around and, and doing really well, and so she kind of was one of them girls that you know wanted to have a football player for a boyfriend. So kind of like in today's Facebook or social media. Uh, community, somebody who wants to have as many likes or wants to be noticed or wants to be attached to something that's kind of a brand. So she was doing it for posturing, for identity, she, I, I, for show. Exactly, exactly. And you didn't catch on to that? No, not at first because she was super nice and I treated her so nice because she was nice and we never fought. And eventually she started complaining that I was too small in the car. So I, had to, I made a pad because we could do that at our work. So it made me taller, but she was concerned, you know, about what kind of car you were in and how tall you were and and everything. And she just wanted an athlete boyfriend. And then she didn't like it because I never fought with her. She said it was kind of boring because we got along too good. She says all her other boyfriends she got in a fight with and they made up and they got in a fight and back and forth. So... Uh, you know, when you're 16, 17 years old and you're dating or entering the dating world, it can be very intimidating. And I presume that you didn't have anybody to talk to about it? You just kind of winged it? You went solo or? Well, no, I had nobody to talk to about it. All of my friends were a little younger than me, mostly. And uh, in them days, you know, uh, the girls were on one side of the gym and the boys were on the other and I was afraid to dance so uh, I didn't go out with girls and, until my senior year and and I didn't go out with her she picked me to a backwards dance so that's how that happened and it threw my sister and through football otherwise I would have never went out with a girl in high school probably I was busy because I had my dad's work which was six days a week Every day after school, during the summer, eight hours a day, which I enjoyed. 
and and then I had uh, my pigeons. I was really highly involved in pigeons from the time I was seven years old till the day I went in the army. Now let me ask you something because we're kind of going all, a little bit all over the place. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we need to let people know that you have an obsession, fascination, vibe, attachment when it comes to pigeons. I remember you telling me stories when you were a little kid walking all over the L.A. area or crossing the riverbed just to enter people's backyards. And if you enjoyed a pigeon that they were hosting, you would take it. And you just couldn't control yourself. And you were a tiny little kid. And eventually, you have your own company, eventually in the back area of this company in uh, in Bowman Park, you had you had a huge amount of space dedicated to a huge pigeon coop. I mean, huge. And I saw it. I walked through it. It felt like two bedrooms. It was huge. Um, why the fascination with pigeons? Well, it just it was me. I started probably when I was like two or three. I would go to the Grand Central Station with my mom. We lived near Dodger Stadium, about fifty yards from the L.A. River. And so we could go to the Grand Central Station pretty easy. And we probably went on a bus. I don't really remember anymore. My dad sometimes would catch a bus to work so that she could have a car. So I, I, would, I left Los Angeles when I was almost five. So it was probably I was three or four years old. We, uh, I started trying to look at the pigeons all the time and try to catch them as a little teeny kid. And... Uh, uh, that's how it kind of started. And and then when I got to Alhambra, I was five, and I would see pigeons flying around that somebody had. So I would go over and look into their backyards and stuff like that. And and finally, I, when I was seven, there was a pigeon cage in an empty lot. But I knew it belonged to the neighbor next door. And I went in there, and I seen a baby pigeon, and I took it. And that was bad. And uh, and I couldn't keep it at my house, so I took it over to a friend's house. But it ended up getting killed by a cat or a dog. So I wanted to get another one. But when I went for the second one, he had gotten a, 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 a German Shepherd. <laughs> and he had it on a chain, and he had a doghouse next to the pigeon cage. Well, uh, he had that doghouse there when I got the first one but when I went for the second one he had a dog in it which I didn't know with a chain and I was looking at the pigeons when the dog came out and I took off running and you're a little kid I was seven and the vacant lot was kind of like on a hill and then it went down to the sidewalk but it was like about a 10 foot drop and the dog got me right in the butt and but his chain uh, 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 yanked him back. Yanked him back eventually, but I just <laughs> I never stopped running. I just ran right out of him, and uh, I ran off that cliff and hit the bottom and got all cut up and bruised. But I got a nice bite on my butt, right? And no pigeon. No, no. <laughs> and uh, so what happened? My dad when I got home. They seen. They want to know what happened to me, and they took me to the hospital. And then I finally told them, "Oh, a dog bit me, over by the pigeon cage." 
And so he came, he went back to the man, and uh, so they were concerned about... Uh, rabies. Rabies. And whether I was going to need rabies shots or not. But uh, I didn't get the rabies shot, and they they had to, I guess, quarantine the jog for a little while and make sure it was okay. And, uh, and wasn't your dad upset that you went all through this hassle just because of a pigeon? Yeah, yeah, but he knew I liked him. Everybody in my family knew I liked him. So about a week after that, he built me a little teeny pigeon cage in the backyard. And from that day on, I ended up with about seven or eight pigeon cages that I built myself. And it they went about 40 feet. I'd add, I kept adding to each one. And I had them from the time I was seven and the time I was 18. How many pigeons did you have when you were like 12 years old? A lot? Well, at first I just had a mixture of everything. I had white kings. I had tumblers. I had fantails. And uh, eventually, though, my best friend had racing pigeons. And he didn't have enough room to, to build another loft at his house. So I did. I, I built my first one myself. Then my uncles decided to help me build a really good one, and they built it exactly like a house with, uh, you know, studs and plaster and drywall. Not drywall, but uh, actually plaster in, inside, too. A full-size birdhouse. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We, in fact, the city came out, and they said I had to get a permit for it, and I had to move it. It was too close to the property line. And then... We had to cut it down because it was too tall. It was eight feet tall. And if I cut it down to seven feet tall, then they had allowed me to keep it. So we had to, before it was finished, uh, luckily they had came and, and got us. How many pigeons were you storing there with that type of a, uh, a house? The breeders, I had the breeders and I had 12 breeders, which is 24 pigeons. But, you know, they can raise uh, 24, three or four times during the year before we separated them. You didn't want the pigeons to, to breed all year because they would start to get weaker and the birds wouldn't come out good. So you, we, we only raised about three to four rounds and then we would separate them and they would be on one side, the hens and the males would be on the other well, side. Would it be easy to have these guys get together or did you have to have like a dance with like, you know, hors d'oeuvres or appetizers or did you have to sing? I mean, they, they didn't know what, the, they, they already knew how to do the business or how does that work? No, if, if you want a particular pair to be put together, you have to kind of lock them up a little bit so they get used to each other. Kind of like now with men and women, huh? If you lock up a man and a woman long enough, I guess they'll have to get used to each other. Yeah, kind of like that. So. How long have you been married, Joe? I don't know. <laughs> okay, anyway, like we were saying. <laughs> I, I guess uh, got married in, what was it, 64? I, I guess it was 64. Anyway, it's been a while. <laughs> what is it now, almost 19? <laughs> so, uh, 54, 55 years. <laughs> well, how old is Jerry, right? <laughs> <coughs> yeah, he think he's 54, something like 53. that. Yeah, well, he's 53. Yeah, huh? he's 53, yeah. He's three years old. Okay. You've been married 53 years, Joe. Yeah. Does it feel like 53 years, like those pigeons in those cages? Yeah. Or do you feel free like those pigeons not no, in those cages? there's nothing free about marriage. There's nothing free about pigeons in a cage either. Yeah, well. When you guys were mating these...
pigeons, were you, did you give them like curtain space? Or you was one looking or were you guys paying attention? No, what, what you do is you lock them in a little, a little coop and you feed them in there for a while until finally they get used, used to each other and then they settle down and they start to make a nest. Once you make, they make a nest, you can start letting them out. I kept the cage divided in half so you could let one pair out on one side and one out in the other. So I had six pair on each side. Oh. And you, you let them out one at a time, and pretty soon they get used to their nest, and they'll stop fighting. At first, you let them out right away all together. They start fighting, and they might actually break up, and one one ma- male might see a hen, and he wants her, and he'll abandon his hen. So, uh, you know, you want to make sure they stay together. Did you do, you do you have any recollections of any of these pigeons, any of these studs? that you were breeding with these hens. Any particular s- little stud guy ever stood out in your memory? Like, this guy really breeds a lot like a rooster? No, but I had a hen that was the best pigeon in Southern California. Oh, really? For a little while. Yeah, I thought so, and I think anybody would have. Uh, we should have put her in for Hall of Fame, but we didn't know what we were doing. Yeah, she was my hero. Is this the one that you said there's a certain number on tagging? You said you wrote an article on her? Yeah, she, her number was 288, and uh, she, her breeding was from Belgium. And I got her from a friend of mine who was Japanese, and uh, he gave me two pigeons, and we raced them, uh, uh, the two pigeons in our loft, and we had 60 pigeons of our own, and they beat our pigeons every time. And so we got rid of our birds, and then pretty soon my friend Sashi, who was the Japanese friend of mine, he started. I started raising pigeons from him with his birds. He he put the his birds into my breeding loft, and I raised babies for him and us with his pigeons, and we became partners. He was uh, I was eleven or twelve, and he was like thirty five or something like that at the time, and. Uh, he was a lot older than you. Oh, yeah, yeah. But Louie, my partner, was four years older, so eventually we could drive because then once he was 16, then we were off to the races, you know. And this bird, said you said, went very, very far and did a lot. It could it could come home in a day from 600 miles. and we. Why, why is that impressive? Well, if you ever... I mean, someone right now is listening to this radio show, and they have their hair headphones on, and they're in bed. That's probably what's happening. But give us a little bit of juice. What what was amazing about this bird? Well, the last race that we flew her before we retired her was in Oregon, Klamath Falls, Oregon. And they let her go in the morning, and she came home that day. And if you ever drive from Klamath Falls, Oregon, back to Alhambra, You'll understand how amazing that is. That's a long ways. When, when you say you retired her, I guess that was her reward. What happened? Do you guys put on like little booties, socks, a scarf? What, what does that mean when you retire a racing pigeon? Well, then she gets her own nest, and she gets a mate, and she gets to have babies, and them babies will raise up. She'll get about six of them a year, and we'll raise up, and we'll put them on our team, and we'll fly them. And we'll keep her until she she dies. Do you remember when she passed? No, because uh, eventually I went in the Army. 
And and then my, my other friend that had the pigeons went in the army, and he passed her on to a guy named John Tropodi, uh, who was a, a pigeon flyer, friend of ours. And eventually, you know, they, they can't have babies and they and they pass away. They don't, you know, they can live, let's say, productive life for maybe maybe eight years. Maybe they can live longer, but they can't have babies and stuff. After a certain time, their eggs become infertile. So eventually, you know, uh, uh, they die. Okay. So um, we talked a little bit about racism, and we talked a little bit about your pigeons. And I am dying to know, I need to ask, what is the secret? Because it is not common anymore, especially in the celebrity world. People are getting divorced all the time. Like the guy who owns Amazon, uh, uh, Bezos, Bezos. I always want to say kiss in Spanish, Bezos, but it's Bezos. Uh, yeah, he uh, and his wife are getting divorced, and there's millions and millions. I think he's a billionaire, actually, now that I think about it. Something like, I was listening to one of the podcasts, and they were saying he's got something like uh, $17 billion? I don't know, some outrageous number. This guy's ultra-rich. But he's getting a divorce, and uh, he's he's uh, dating somebody a lot younger than him, you know, some very attractive young lady. Shocker. But that's really the norm. That's what I see people do nowadays. Politicians have someone on the side. Everybody goes through one or two divorces, especially like on the West Coast or on the East Coast. But you've been married for 53 years, Joe. How does somebody keep it together for 53 years? I mean, you don't strike me as a particularly religious man. And I know that that helps a lot of people stay, you know, playing by the same rules and the same platform. And so it's maybe a little easier to keep a marriage together. But, you know, I love seeing stories about or hearing stories about you and your grandkids and you and your kids, and I've met them all, and you have a wonderful family, and for holidays you guys have these big get-togethers. What, how, do you, how do you do it? What, if you had to tell somebody, like your grandkids, right, this is how you stay married forever. I mean, do you want to stay married forever now that you've done it? Would you do it again? Maybe, maybe you don't want to stay married forever, but, I mean, what, what is the secret? Hmm. Well, you know, uh, it's nice to have somebody to talk to. And, uh, and I don't, I don't know, uh, you know, when you have kids, uh, you have a family and, uh, I happen to like my family and, uh, my wife's part of that family. So it's a, it's a whole group. Once you get married and have children, you're like married to the whole family and, and it's nice. And, and, and I actually do believe in Jesus Christ. And uh, my friend that I was in pigeons with from the time I was a kid, seven, eight, till uh, even after that, uh, even even when I had my pigeons at my loft, we were always friends. Uh, he's never missed a day of church in his life. But that's not you. You're not a church guy. Neither is Tilly, no. as long as I've known you guys. And, and I don't see you guys particularly flaunted when you're at restaurants. You're more of what I call the silent type of Christians, but you're not particularly affiliated with any religion or any church. So I think you are a spiritual person, you believe and have a faith, but I don't think you're a religious person where you're out there being involved in fundraisers or activities to change laws because of a church, like in in this case, for example, the Catholic Church, right? Yeah. 
So that's what I meant. I don't. I mean, I don't. I don't. I have never seen religion or even faith or spirituality well, between you two guys. I wouldn't call myself a, a Catholic. I call myself more a, a born again Christian, Leo. Since when? Well, I've been baptized, and uh, but since when? Oh, since when have you been a born again Christian? Well, I'm not saying I go to church a lot. I'm not going to say that, but I do believe in Jesus Christ. Sure. And I do pray a lot of times. Sometimes I forget at night time. But I do pray a lot. And I have a lot to be thankful for. And uh, I believe it happened. And uh, I'm not saying I, I believe in the Old Testament, everything I read. But the Old Testament kind of is a guide for you. Trying to uh, guide you. Right, but, but I definitely don't want the listeners... To, to feel like your secret to a long marriage has oh, to do no, with religion or spirituality or your faith in Jesus Christ. I, as long as I've known you for 20 plus years, I'm, I've never heard you ever tell me, Leo, I thought about this, I prayed about it, Jesus told me this is what I should do. I've never heard that ever come out of you when it comes to sure. advice or brainstorming or problem solving. Sure. So what, what is it that keeps the glue together for uh, you know, 50 plus years to stay married? Oh, well, hmm. well uh, you, you know, a religion don't put you together, doesn't keep you together. Oh, listen, there's a lot of Mormons yeah. or versions of Mormons in Utah that will tell you the difference. <laughs> They'll tell you differently. Yeah, I know. There's also lots of religions in third world countries, right, yeah. that, that hold people together and they're going to stay together with their wives no matter what. And in the Catholic Church, you're not supposed to get a divorce no matter what. It's very rare to get a divorce. So if you're a religious person, no matter how many times your old man beats you or how many affairs he has, you're not going to divorce him. So in some religions, yeah, actually it does mean everything to stay married and procreate and and continue that religion. That is the child yeah, of religion. Yeah, I know, I know what you're But you're not like that. No, no, no. No, but... Uh... Uh, some of my uh, family members are, and it makes me feel good that they do. Uh, uh, and I would like to be more, you know, but uh, it's always been there. Uh, I used to go uh, with Louis all the time to a Catholic church, and, uh, and I liked it. I liked dressing up. I liked uh, uh, listening to a, a minister or, or a priest or a father uh, uh, I did, and, and I got a lot out of it. I, I went with my Chinese teacher to her born-again Christian church, and I listened to it uh, sometimes in English from the preacher and sometimes in, a, uh, in an earphone with an interpreter. And uh, they're the same as us. Uh, and uh, I talked to my dance teacher a lot about it. Uh, Tilly... Uh, is pretty strict, believe it or not. Uh, she prays every night. Yes, she does. And uh, uh, and I'm definitely thankful for where I was born and uh, how the the parents that I had, that I was privileged to, to be in a town like Alhambra, which was a beautiful little town. At and, that time, right? Yeah, and it. A long time ago. Yeah. Super and, populated now. Yeah. I was just there a month ago. And uh, I loved it there. And and my aunts, I had, when we had a Thanksgiving or New Year's party, we would have 30 or 40 people and all relatives 
and uh, all my relatives uh, kind of liked each other. My dad had, uh, he had three brothers. One I never knew because he died before I was born. And he had uh, five sisters, and they really got along. Yeah, they fought. But, boy, you better never say anything bad about any sister or any brother because you're going to get a fight. And you never talk bad about family members, even though they would argue when they were doing stuff. My uncles built our house that we lived in, and they didn't ch charge or anything. They were both bachelors. Not only did they build my dad's house, they built almost a house for every sister, and uh, they built each other their houses. So uh, nobody, you know, that's what our family was. Your, your family is a successful immigrant story, right? They come over from... Well, uh, my grandfather was from Sicily, and uh, he came over, I think it was might have been 1915, or let me see, probably 1915. And he ended up uh, in New York, uh, in uh, Upper New York, and had a farm. It didn't work out because one son had uh, some kind of disease that you needed warm weather, maybe tuberculosis or something like that. And he sent him out looking for a area for him to to live in. He sent his son out because he was older on a train. And he eventually ended up in San Bernardino because the train goes through San Bernardino. And so he sold his properties in New York and moved to San Bernardino with his kids and uh, started a new life because one kid needed better weather. And it, it didn't help. He eventually died. And, uh, but they, they were in San Bernardino. That's where they started their lives, really. And that's kind of where your dad and your uncles were at. That's where they were raised, yes. Yeah. But you now live in Huntington Beach. Yeah, because of weather. Again, my wife had trouble with the, the allergies of different trees. In Samoa, you know, they, they don't have the same vegetation that we have here in California. And she was allergic to a lot of the different pollens and stuff. She was having all kinds of allergy problems. And uh, so I thought it would be better if I could get her some... The doctor actually said, maybe go down by the beach. It might be a little cleaner air. It might help her. And we did, and it did help her. And that's why we moved to Huntington Beach. Yes. And, and of course, my son wanted to surf. So that was... Uh, uh, and, of course, now your son's in his 50s, and he's got boys of his own, and they're surfers like him. That's right. He lives in Huntington Beach. And, and you surfed in Hawaii when you were in the Army. That's right. I was a surfer, and I actually... One of the reasons why I went to Hawaii was because uh, I used to see these travel channels and I just loved seeing all the water and the beautiful vegetation and the hula girls. So uh, at, when I got out of high school, you were going to get drafted if you didn't go to college. And so I decided to uh, get it over with, you know, because uh, I didn't want to wait to be drafted. And if I joined, I could go to Hawaii. I had to join for a, an extra year, but I did. So I joined up and ended up in Hawaii, just kind of like I planned. And when you were getting out of the Army, that's when Vietnam was ramping up. So you just barely missed that. Well, I, I, I'm not sure if I missed it. I was in Thailand, and it had already, my friends had been killed already uh, in our outfit. 
uh, it was going on in uh, 1963. I had uh, I joined I got to Hawaii in 63, and I ended up in Thailand in May of 63. And I had friends killed over there. They were machine gunners on uh, the helicopters. Our outfit produced about 50 of them, and uh, our battalion actually, and uh, and a lot of them got wounded. Uh, Tilly and uh, uh, we double dated with a friend of mine, Chuck Wright, who got wounded, and almost everybody that was in a helicopter either died or got wounded. It seemed like. So you think you just got lucky then that you didn't get shipped over as the cook? Well, I I got to Thailand, and the reason why we were in Thailand was a CEDO exercise, and it was just an excuse to build the roads in the Laos and Cambodia uh, from Thailand to the borders. They wanted they, we couldn't leave Thailand in the exercise, but they were building roads in Thailand that people had never seen white people before. And they did that because they were making these roads for the war and also the big airports. They had Camp Friendship as one of them we stayed in. And uh, that was a giant warehouse base. In the did you make any friends there, Joe? Well, it was an interesting... Uh, Maybe you should call it Camp Interesting then because then it was called Camp Friendship. It was definitely, you know, <laughs> to go from Alhambra to Thailand... And expect everybody to have uh, streets and curbs and sidewalks and grass. But it wasn't like that. And, and that, you know, I was very naive. You know, I didn't know much about the world. And uh, Do you think that's changed now? What? Changed what? That you don't know much about the world? And no, I don't, I don't think anybody knows much about the world. They, these Half these politicians that are running to be the president of America don't know anything either. You know, it's just, when you get over there, you're shocked, to be honest. You get out in the jungles, these people have never seen a white person. They don't have no roads. They don't have no electricity. All they got is a machete, okay? And they don't have no police out there. There's nobody out there. It's, it's, it's family or village against village. And you better not look at another woman because if you look at the wrong woman, your head's coming off. And you could see that being over there, that that's exactly how it was. No law. It just, you better be careful. Let me ask you something, Joe, because this is one thing I like about hanging out with you. There's never a shortage of words or stories with you. And I'm sure we're going to have you back at the FBP lounge here because we're not even, we're just barely touching the surface. But let me ask you something. You've been around a long time. You've helped your dad build a huge company. Your son's been running that company. And, you know, you've been on these, these crazy boat adventures because you've owned boats. And you're crazy about pigeons. And you were also a hell of a runner. You did very well on a state level. And you had a coach who is in... Um, maybe the best ever. Maybe the best ever. What was his name? Ted Banks. Yes. What 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 is the iconic memory that you have of Ted Banks? Well, I think I was his first runner. And uh, 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 all I can tell you is he just had passion for whatever he did. And he had the passion for being a coach. And it, it trickled down to his runners. And he coached some very famous people, right? He actually had the world record holder in the mile. 
uh, Nordin. He was an African, uh, not African, but a Muslim actually from, uh, you know, right on the Mediterranean. I'm not sure what country right now, but uh, Morelli Nordin or Nordin Morelli. I'm not sure which way it went. And he did the mile in 444, I'll say. And he had the world record in that. He had the world record in the 1,500 meters and 1,000. And he coached him at Riverside Junior College because uh, he got banned from the universities, my coach, because he helped put on a huge track meet in South Africa because they were going to uh, force the runners from South Africa and some of the other countries out of the Olympics, which I think they did. So he had this big meet he helped put on, and then he got blackballed out of out of track. And he had 17 national titles in nine years, okay? That's indoor and outdoor track and cross-country. And his cross-country team was almost perfect. Half his team were Olympians. And uh, people got so jealous of him because he was so successful that he ended up quitting college and went work for Converse for 10 years running their athletic department for shoes. He signed guys like Dr. J and Tony Dorsett and different people. Brown in track. There was a young uh, a runner. I forgot his first name, but I think it was Brown. And he was from Baldwin Park. He was on the relay team. And right by our store, I have a, we have a store in Baldwin Park. So that was kind of neat. But anyway, yeah, he uh, he was definitely the best track coach in probably the world. This young gentleman that came and ran for him at University of Riverside uh, Junior College, J.C. Riverside, uh, was the best runner in the world, junior. And he came strictly to America to run for him. And the best runner ended up in the world at the time. And he came there because he had a reputation of taking kids and making them better, and they enjoyed running for him. Um, Joe, we're going to start, 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 I want to start wrapping up the podcast okay. because we're already going on to an hour. Can you believe it? No, no. Oh, I can. Listen, um, there's a lot of people, in my opinion, there's a lot of young men out there, a lot of old guys like me. There's a, a whole, the nation, this country, this planet, but definitely, I'm speaking here in California from my observation, there seems to be a lot of young men who don't get the needed advice until they go to therapy, a counselor, they're in trouble, where they have to then seek uh, some sort of guidance, or, you know, when something bad happens to them, they got to go to their priest. Uh, some guys are lucky enough to have a dad, and who's experienced and knowledgeable and caring and and is supportive. And um, I've noticed throughout the years that a lot of people have leaned on you to get that, you know, advice, to get that input. It would be easier if everybody just kind of knew what it was, would, wouldn't it be? So my, my question to you is this. Now that you've, you know, you've seen all these things and, and you know, you, you experience all these things, what would be your best advice to any young man? Not looking back, like, with your interpretation of the world, with your understanding of your place in it, what would, you be, what would be your best advice to any young man if you had to give advice to anybody? Be patient, maybe. Uh, you know, 
changes take forever. Uh, I think patience. Uh, that, you know, there's nobody perfect in the world. And uh, uh, I've I seen, uh, I work with black people in the Army. And uh, I worked with the cook, Davis, and I absolutely loved him. And his wife, you know, really liked me a lot, too. And uh, when we went to Thailand, he liked drinking Davis. And so he didn't want to go. And so he, he was basically drunk when we got on the plane. And she, she made me promise her that I'll take care of him, and I did. And he took care of me, too. And we were really... It was really a nice, a nice thing, and uh, I've been working with a lot of uh, uh, guys in the kitchen, uh, and I was young and little, and I had some guys that were the biggest, meanest-looking suckers, and you would, you would be afraid to be around them, and they were, they were the neatest, greatest guys you'd ever want to meet, and then you, you'd have a college guy come in. And it'd be, you'd think, oh, this guy's a nice guy, and he'd be terribly prejudiced. And he could be brown, he could be white, he could be black, but didn't mean anything. And uh, I, I found out that uh, you, you can never judge anybody how they look. You just got to be patient, and you'll find out, you know. And uh, I don't know. It's just that uh, I don't want to judge anybody too quick anymore. Uh only got maybe 10 more years before I'd be gone but uh, you don't want to judge you just got to be patient and you'll, you'll find out and people do make mistakes uh, wives make mistakes husbands make mistakes you got to be a little patient about it and it seems like it, it works out okay in the end That's all. thank you very much Joe for being part of this podcast my name is Leo X this is the Full Blooded Lounge sponsored by Free Ballroom Lessons.com. Thank you, Joe. Uh, thank you, Leo.